the familiar strains of the Chinese national anthem, sung, surprisingly, by Paul Robeson. And we're going to talk about how this came about with my next guest shortly. Uh, Robeson, of course, great actor, great singer, great activist, and for me as a young communist, a great hero. We've done several programs on his life, his connections to the Communist Party, to the civil rights movement, even that performance for the workers who were building the Opera House in Sydney back in 1960. He climbed the scaffolding and sang his modified version of Old Man River. He wasn't too thrilled with the original lyrics. He sang it to the workers gathered below. And if you haven't seen the footage, you should look it up on the internet. Robeson saw himself as a citizen of the world and when permitted a passport, travelled widely, performing across the globe. But I had no idea that he still holds a special status in China. Now, to explain how he came to be so well known, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Gao Yongchan, who is a professor of history at the Toronto Metropolitan University and author of Arise Africa, Raw China, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Yung Chan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You've written a book about the connections between China and African-American cultural giants, activists, intellectuals. Why is this relationship so important to understand? Okay, it's a very good question. So I think by talking about the dynamics between African-American cultural giants, including Robeson and others in China, my book, Arise Africa, Raw China, Black and Chinese Citizens of the World in the 20th Century, uh, breaks new grounds uh, in many important aspects. Uh, First, and while most scholarship on Sino-American relations tend to treat the United States as default white. So my book sets new path by foregrounding African-Americans. Yung Chan, how did Robeson originally make his connections with the Chinese community? So uh, this connection between Robeson and China were not accidental. And instead, you know, they were rooted in Robeson's faith and beliefs in Sino-Afro-linguistic, philosophical, and artistic kingship. And their shared political destiny, destiny of anti-colonialism and anti-racism. So such beliefs and facilitated his long-term alliances with the sojourning leftist Chinese artists and other prominent, prominent figures uh, in the Trans-Pacific liberal network. For instance, you know, among those uh, Robeson befriended were Paul Bark, the Nobel laureate, laureate and the gatekeeper of China uh, matters in, in the United States, and Amy Wong the first uh, Asian-American star in Hollywood, and Mei Lan Fong, and China's king of Peking opera, and of course, Madame Suyensen, the leftist sister of Madame Jiang Kai-shek, the first lady of the Republic of China. So that's, that was the origin of this alliance between Robeson and China. He embraced March of the Volunteers right from the outset. 
I didn't realise he ended up recording an album of Chinese songs. How did that happen? That's a very interesting story. Okay. This, uh, he recorded this album called Qi Lai, Sounds of a New China, for Kenwood Records uh, in 1941. So this uh, recording all started with a phone call he received uh, in New York City uh, in November 1940. So from whom this phone call? From uh, Lin Yutang, uh, the famous Chinese writer and philosopher. And in this phone call, Lin Yutang asked Robeson to meet a new arrival from China whose name was Liu Liangmore, another figure covered in my book. Okay. So after this phone call, within minutes, Robeson appeared in the caller's apartment, and Robeson and Liu Liangmore became fast friends. And Liu later would recall Robeson beaming over me with his friendly smile, and his giant hat firmly held mine. And so Robeson then inquired about the mass singing movement Liu Liangmore had initiated, initiated in China for war mobilization. And Liu Liangmore sang, sang the signature piece, Qi Lai, also called the March of Volunteers. And Robeson listened intently, and wrote down some notes, and left with a copy of the song. So several weeks later, at his outdoor concert, Robeson announced, I am going to sing a Chinese fighting song uh, tonight in honor of the Chinese people, and that song is Qi Lai. So a year later, Robeson, Liu Liangmore, and the Chinese People's Chorus, which Liu Liangmore had organized among members of the Chinese Head Laundry Alliance in New York City's Chinatown, they together all recorded this album of Chinese fighting and folk songs. And uh, New York Times lauded this album as one of the year's best. And Robeson also uh, reprised this song at his numerous concerts. And his version of the song was adopted by Hollywood in some movies as well. Young China, how was his Chinese accent? Was pretty good. I remember, you know, at the very beginning, you played the song. Pretty good. I learned from you that Robeson sent a telegram to Mao Zedong when the CCP was victorious in 1949. And that was published in the People's Daily. Yes. He said, he, his, his telegram said, uh, we celebrate the birth of the People's Republic of China because it is a great force in the struggles for world peace and human freedom. So that was telegram. He also sang Chile on the streets of Harlem, which I think is a, a fascinating idea. And as you say, he told a peace conference in, or in Paris that mm-hmm. it was unthinkable that American Negroes should go to war against the Soviet Union on behalf of those that oppressed them back home. Yes, indeed. That was April 20th, 1949. So that speech actually marked his political downfall in the United States. Because that speech quickly brought him massive condemnation, and including from Jackie Robinson, and the famous African-American baseball star, of course, whom Robeson had helped to integrate the game. It's interesting, isn't it, that he, he never got to China, ever. But, of course, his passport was cancelled in 1950. Right. 
So you're right. He never visited China, and uh, the reason was uh, in, in Republican China, he befriended you know overseas Chinese citizens. Opportunity never appeared for him to visit, and during Republican China, he was invited on many occasions, as you mentioned, impossible because of passport. Well, when he got it back, when the Supreme Court uh, decided he could have it back in 1958, he headed off on a world tour, which included celebrations in London to mark 10 years of the CCP at a Chinese film festival. But I learned from you he was banned by the USA from entering China or any other communist country. Yes. So actually, not only him, anybody, you get a passport after 1958, and you would see, you would see uh, uh, a few lines like this. So this pa- passport was not invalid, uh, not, were not valid for travel to or in communist constituted portions of China, Korea, and Vietnam, or to or in areas of Albania and Hungary. So therefore, you know, Du Bois is the same case. Uh, his passport was casually restored in 1958. They both toured Europe. Eventually, Du Bois, as I mentioned in my book, uh, Du Bois and his wife just risked, despite this sentence from their passport, they just decided to take the risk. They traveled to China, but, you know, paid their price afterwards. There was consequence. And Robeson was hesitating. He traveled to East Europe, and the U.S. State Department and FBI were watching closely to see whether he was going to go to China. If he was going to, they were going to cancel again. So, therefore, he didn't go. His uh, support, of course, for China and the Soviet caused his downfall, and he was effectively banned from performances in the United States as well. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible story. But his fame survives in China. I understand he's known as the Black King of Songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his fame in China, I think, uh, well, he was famous in both, you know, uh, Republican China. That is to say, you know, the period before 1949, the Communist victory and afterwards. And so in, uh, before that, he was probably, I would argue, the most visible black celebrity in China and because of his global fame. And back then, Chinese mainstream media barely covered any uh, black celebrities, but made an exception for him. And, but ultimately, back then, he was treated as an exotic entertainer. And, but after 1949, and he was more famous, and also the image was transformed because he became the uh, model, the revolutionary hero to inspire Chinese citizens. So under that context, uh, he was reintroduced as the, the Black King of Sounds for the oppressed masses in the world who embodied the perfect marriage between art and politics. And, of course, he, with Dubois and uh, and Langston Hughes, formed this uh, triumvirate, a part of the movement to black internationalism. Yes, you know, they, they connect the black diaspora you know, with the rest of the world, uh, including China. So when we talk about black internationalism, probably we tend to think about African-America and uh, we talk about Caribbean, we talk about uh, Africa. Usually we don't think about uh, Asia or China, but my book shows that direction as well. 
The Untold Story is now told thanks to you and it's been a privilege to talk to you, Yung Chung. Uh, the good doctor, Gao Yung Chung, is a professor of history at the Toronto Metropolitan University and author of Arise Africa, Raw China, Black and Chinese Citizens of the World in the 20th Century. It's published by the University of North Carolina Press. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.